Well, maybe you can hear this a little bit. Been having an awesome sinus infection this week. So let's see how long my voice holds out. We're going to be in Acts chapter 1. This is the second week of our sermon series in the book of Acts. And we'll be reading verses 12 to 26. Before we read those verses, let me orient us again to what we're doing today. Throughout the fall semester, we're going to be going through this New Testament book of Acts, part of it at least, and the actual title of Acts is a little longer than just Acts. It's the Acts of the Apostles. And I mention this, the longer version of the title, uh, because today our text is telling us what an apostle is and why they're so important to Christianity and to us. I can confidently say, as Ken mentioned earlier, there we would, we would not be sitting here if it wasn't for them. We would not be worshiping or meeting today. <clears throat> they are foundational to everything as God's people. And so today, we're essentially unearthing our spiritual genealogy. We're looking back to how did we become the family of Christ? This is like Ancestry.com, but in the Bible the book of Acts, discovering the rich origins of our history, our family of faith. Where and how did the church begin? And and it helps us answer that question because, after all, if Jesus rose from the dead, if he ascended into heaven, he is no longer here. You and I have not seen him walking the streets of West Lafayette. How exactly can he continue to minister to people? How exactly can he save people on earth if he's not even on the planet? He only came for three years of ministry and 30 years before that of growing up. And the answer to these questions, how can Jesus continue to minister? How can he share his message, is answered by looking at the apostles. And so the book of Acts is all about how the apostles carry out the ongoing ministry of Jesus by carrying out the mission that Jesus gave them. And right away, we're going to see, though, there's a problem. There were 12 apostles commissioned by Jesus to start the church, but in our text, there's only 11. Judas betrayed Jesus, sold him out, and ended up committing suicide. And so there's only 11 apostles, and there's supposed to be 12. It's kind of like when you go uh, to Ikea. If you're, maybe you haven't done this yet, but one day when you graduate, you'll get an apartment, and you'll think, how can I furnish this like an adult? And you'll go to Ikea because you think, well, where else can I go to get some decent-looking but relatively inexpensive furniture? And, uh, you know, you buy stuff at Ikea. You have to build all of it. And it's inevitable, an hour into building it, you realize that one screw is missing. Um, You're just trying to build this chair called a Jarfugelot because it's Swedish. I don't, that's literally, I actually saw that online. That's literally the name of a chair. And all you want to do is finish building it. This, This piece 
of furniture, but a piece is missing or a screw is gone and you can't find it. You just want to finish it. And that's kind of what's happening in Acts. Something's missing. The Spirit of God hasn't come to empower them for their mission, and something is missing. And in the 10 days between Jesus going up into heaven and the Spirit descending from heaven, the 10 days, the only thing that we have recorded is this passage. So you know it's important. They're trying to tell us something significant. This is the significant thing that we're to know. Let's read this, Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these were with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And in those days... Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was about 120 in all and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us. He was allotted his share in this ministry, but he acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, He burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. It became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So the field was called in their language, Ekeldama, which means field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, let no one dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas and Matthias, and they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in the ministry and the apostleship, which Judas turned aside from to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. The lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So there's some strange and interesting things in there. But what we mainly see is they come to the conclusion they have to replace Judas while they're praying and studying scripture. And so... Judas has died. He's buried in a field now. He died because uh, he ended up taking his own life. It tells us that elsewhere. And he did that because he felt so ashamed at having betrayed Jesus. So now there's an apostle missing. And so to understand this passage a little more fully, let's ask a couple questions first. What exactly is an apostle? And why must there be 12 original apostles? And What is the significance of those 12 for us today? What is an apostle? Why must there be 12? And why does it matter to us? So first, what's an apostle? An apostle is a messenger chosen by Jesus to be his witness to others about the person of Christ and the purposes of God's mission to the world. I'll say it again. An apostle is a messenger chosen by Jesus to be his witness to others about the person of Christ and the purposes of God's mission to the world. Let me break those down. 
to help us understand what an apostle is. Because many of us have heard of the apostles, but we very rarely talk about why they're so significant. This passage is here to point out that there must be 12 and that they are very significant to everything else that's going to happen in the book of Acts. So what is an apostle? A messenger first. The origin of the word apostle in ancient Greek actually refers to a naval expedition and its commander originally. So it meant a ship ready for departure. It's been commissioned and certified. It has all its paperwork and it's ready to go. And so really it came to be this broader sense of sending out. And so it could also be used later as a description of someone being sent for a specific purpose. So, for example, in English, we might say an ambassador or a delegate or a messenger. Someone sent out with a message, with a particular purpose. And so the apostles were messengers um, sent by God himself. Messengers, a group of particular believers chosen by Jesus to have a special function as God's spokespersons. They were God's special agents, not secret agents. They didn't do, every, they didn't do stuff in secret. It was, they weren't hiding it. They publicly went about sharing the message to the whole known world at the time. And so they are messengers first. But secondly, an apostle is a messenger chosen by Jesus. So this is important. In verse 13, what we read, Luke named, Luke is the writer of Acts. He names the apostles. He, he doesn't give them a name. He names who they are except for Judas. There's two Judases, so the last one in the list, Judas the son of James, not Judas Iscariot, like not the Judas who betrayed Jesus. So he lists 11 in verse 13. It's the same list that happens throughout the entire Gospels of Mark, Matthew, and Luke. And the book of Acts is opening by telling us that Jesus spent 40 days between his resurrection and ascension, proving that he was truly resurrected, teaching about the kingdom of God and giving commands to the apostles whom he had chosen. That's what it says in Acts 1, verses 1 to 3. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he'd given commands through his Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. So he's giving evidence. Appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So they were the apostles whom he had chosen, it says in verse 2. It also says that in verse 22, that, that he must choose. He had chosen these people, these messengers. They're chosen by Jesus. And earlier, uh, in other places in other gospels, so John, in the gospel of John, Jesus told his apostles, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. That's John 15, 16. Jesus said, I've chosen you to work in you in a very lasting way. I chose you that you would bear fruit, that your lives would be fruitful for my purposes in an abiding way. That means a lasting way. And the work of the apostles lasted well beyond their own lives. Their impact very much has outlasted them. This is extraordinary because they are just ordinary people with very little education, most of them. The 12 apostles were literally just normal people fishing, collecting taxes, going about their day when Jesus called them, and they decided to follow him. He chose them, but they chose to follow him. And so they followed Jesus and learned from him just like all the other disciples. But at a certain point, Jesus called all of his disciples and said, I'm choosing 12. 
Luke describes it this way in the Gospel of Luke. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night long he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose 12 particular ones whom he named apostles. Then it names them again. It tells you their names. So Jesus spent all night in prayer because this was a serious decision. He wanted to be in perfect concert, in perfect unity with his father on who the 12 were. And it's not because he didn't know. Don't you pray about important decisions in your life? Even if you're not anxious about them. If you're a follower of Christ, you simply want to be in line with the father's will. And so you pray about your important decisions. You pray, maybe in particular, about the kind of relationships that you're going to have. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's inviting people into close proximity, close relationship. He's chosen them to be his messengers. And they were chosen for a particular purpose. He tells them that they're not going to be like the world anymore in John 15 again. He tells them instead, I've chosen you out of the world, not because he's going to take them to Mars, but because he's chosen them out of the world, meaning out of the ways of the world and into a purpose for the world that's different than the way the world works. They were chosen, my chosen ones, for a particular purpose. Now, this isn't weird if you've read the Bible because literally every single story of the Bible is rooted in God choosing. He chose Noah. He chose Moses. Or he chose Abraham. He chose Isaac. He chose Jacob. He chose Moses. He chose David. He chose Solomon. He chose all the prophets. But the point of being chosen by God to have a very particular special role was never simply to say, I have a particular special role with God. It was always for the sake of others. It was so that through this one leader, God would reveal his plan of how he was choosing others. He was inviting many into the promises of God. So being chosen actually gets applied throughout the New Testament to anybody who believes. The the point being that if you actually believe the message that the apostles were sent to give, it's because Jesus chose you to hear it. Now, he chooses then us to go spread it as far and wide as possible because he actually chooses that everyone should hear it, even though not everyone will believe it. So in choosing them, he changes the trajectory of their lives. They are now set apart from the world to be his chosen messengers and his witnesses in the world. That's the third piece. They were chosen by Jesus to be his witness to others. So in verse 21 and 22, we see that there's a very specific criteria to being an apostle. Peter describes this criteria as the 11 are discerning who God has chosen to be the 12th apostle to take Judas's place. So here's what it says, verse 21 and 22 again. This is a criteria. It's got to be a person, a man who has accompanied us during all the time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. So basically, from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, beginning with the baptism of John to the time when Jesus began his ministry until he was taken up, ascended from earth back to heaven. One of these men must become a witness to his resurrection. So the reason for choosing them and the message that they have is a message that is a witness. It is a, something you would do on trial. He's gathered 12 witnesses to testify to a truth or a reality. And the thing they have to testify to is the entire ministry of Jesus. So it had to be someone who was with him, culminating in his resurrection. Because really, who cares what Jesus taught, what Jesus said, what Jesus did, if he was just an ordinary guy who died in a grave? 
But you might want to listen if he came back from a grave. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses throughout the book of Acts, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 4, and so on. There's many references every time they mention being witnesses to the resurrection. The, the, the apostles go on to give a sermon or a speech to describe not just that Jesus rose, but what it means and why it matters. In Luke 24, they're just, they're just mimicking Jesus. In Luke 24, before he left, he did the same thing. He lays out all the connections between what God spoke in the past in the Old Testament and says, actually, I am the fulfillment of everything there. By rising from the dead, I am the fulfillment. So the 12 apostles serve then as God's authoritative witnesses tasked with telling everyone they can about the person of Christ and the purposes of God's mission. And that is this. What is, what is the purpose? God's mission in sending his son Christ, who is God himself, to teach, to heal, to save people through the death of his, through dying on the cross, through rising from the grave, is to bring about a great reversal. To reverse sickness to health, like he does in some miracles to reverse blindness into sight, to reverse sinners into saints, to reverse even death to life. If you've ever longed for a reversal in your life, a do-over, something to be undone, taken away, wished that it had never happened and it turned out another way, then Jesus has got to be your guy. Because who else has come back from death? That's his story. That's what he wants them to witness to, the reality that all the bad things can actually be undone, but only through Christ who actually can conquer death. That's what they are witnesses to. The person of Christ, this is the last part, the person of Christ and the purposes of God's mission to the world. The promises of Scripture, when you read the Old Testament, now, Jesus is saying, the apostles are saying, all of that was actually leading up to this, God's great redemptive plan to reverse the ugly, broken things of the world. God himself was accomplishing a plan throughout the entire Bible to forgive our sins, to give us the opportunity to repent, to pay our ransom, to purchase our lives back from the brink of death and instead to reverse them to have everlasting life. So this is why they had to go and witness to Jesus' resurrection. And it often says, in his name. They were to be witnesses in his name. What does that mean? Well, my name's Rick. And I have often uh, depended in my life on my own ability, my reputation, my efforts in order to fix my problems and to heal my own life. Sometimes I succeed in doing a little better, but often I found myself trapped, unable to overcome the things I wish I didn't do. <coughs> and sometimes I do the very things I don't want to do. Sometimes I love doing things that I know I shouldn't. But this is what it's like to live in the name of Rick. Everything falls on my shoulders, how my life goes, how well I'm doing, whether I succeed, whether I fail, whether I'm getting better, whether I'm getting worse. It's up to me. 
life in my name, lived on my ways, on my terms, for my purposes, is living life in my name. But to live in the name of Jesus means instead to have everything that's true about him become true about you. His whole character, all of his attributes that make him able to save, able to forgive, when you become his follower, you are taking on his character and committing to live a life that represents his name. And his name is the name that can pull off the greatest reversal in history. When you are living in his name, you get to be part of one who gave up his life so that nothing would be held against our lives any longer. Not my sin, not my wrongdoing, not my self-focus, not my right-doing, not my perfectionism. No, in all of those things, nothing will be held against me. Not my pride, not my failures. Jesus told his disciples that forgiveness should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. You are witnesses of these things, is what he says in Luke 24. They are witnesses to the faithful, atoning death, powerful resurrection, kingly ascension of Jesus. And they are witnesses to how the meaning of those events are explained all throughout Scripture, that we are to live in God's name and no longer in our own. Because in our own, we are limited to ourselves. But if we are living life in his name, we have all the treasures of God himself. These events mean that God's plan to forgive us, to wipe out our our efforts to just live for ourselves in our own name are cleared off the table. And instead, we are brought into his far greater, far grander purposes to bring restoration to earth. That's what an apostle is, a messenger chosen by Jesus to be his witness to others about the incredible person, the name of Christ, and the purposes of God's mission to the world. And why do there have to be 12? What's the big deal? Why do they have to replace Judas with another? Well, this actually goes back to the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 43. Chapter 41 to 43 actually lays out this conversation that God has between his people and all the nations of the earth. And in the conversation, God actually brings a lawsuit against idols. God invites them to bring witnesses to testify against them. So God's not afraid of a trial. Now you think that, then you often think, man, God, he judges us. And I don't like that. I don't like that God is a judge. He's gonna put me on trial. I don't like that. But throughout the Bible, the Lord isn't just a judge. In the end, he actually puts himself on trial for us. And what he does is he invites us to look at our lives and to say, what? is it that your life is founded upon? So you might think, well, I don't worship idols of wood and stone and clay, but all the idols of the Old Testament pointed to real life things. They had fertility gods and wealth gods. They had gods for everything that you and I still tend to put our trust in. Wealth, money, success, fame, reputation, body image. They had gods to all those things, idols to all those things. And what God does in the lawsuit is he says, bring some witnesses. Tell me, people, has this stuff that you are pursuing, that you worship, that you love, that you built your life upon, has it actually transformed your life to such an extent 
that you know without a shadow of a doubt that it will bring everlasting hope. That this is the thing, having a lot of money, will secure you even after death. Having a great reputation and body image, this is the thing that will secure you an everlastingly good life. So he says, bring me some witnesses. And they can't find any. But the sad thing in Isaiah is that God says, I'll bring my witnesses too. But his own people, his own witnesses, are so enthralled to the same idols that everybody else is that they refuse to testify. And the story of the Bible has been, God is not afraid of a trial, but nobody has been willing to truthfully testify to what he's really like until Jesus. Only the chosen ones throughout the the history of redemption, Moses, David, the prophets, those are the only ones who were willing to often stand up in a public way and testify to God, and many of them were killed for it which is to say that we have put God on trial. We so hate what God has to say in giving up our own lives that we would rather kill his messengers than to look at the witness of whether they're telling the truth. And there has to be 12 because the ancient Israelites were grouped into 12 tribes. So what is Jesus saying when he particularly chooses 12 to be his witnesses? He's saying That story from the Old Testament, all the things that are there have been leading up to this. And what I'm telling you, Israel, so here's what's going to happen. Where are they sent first? In in chapter 1, verse 8, it says, I am sending you as my witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. There to be his witnesses to his truth everywhere. But where are they starting? In Jerusalem, the same place that Jesus just died. Where is he sending them first? He's going to tell them, oh, um, by the way, I would like you to go be witnesses to the truth that I have risen from the grave. Do you know what that's going to do? It's going to be really frustrating to all the people who just murdered Jesus in Jerusalem. Basically, by sending witnesses, Jesus is declaring a mistrial. Oh, you put God on trial. You thought that he was just an ordinary person. You put Jesus on trial, and instead he declares a mistrial, saying, actually... He is who he says he is. He rose from a grave. Can you imagine how scary this is? This is like the opposite of witness protection programs. Jesus isn't like having his witnesses hide out and protect it. He's sending them straight to the people who just murdered the guy. So it better be true. Why else would they do it? Why would they lie? They were just going to get killed otherwise. He's telling us there's new evidence. And the evidence is that Jesus actually is who he says he is. He can turn darkness into light. He can turn death into life. And so he sends them as witnesses. But there's 12. And what he's saying is he sends them to the nation of Israel in Jerusalem. And he says, you're not true Israel. You want to know what true Israel is? People like these 12 who actually now recognize who God truly is. The Israelites thought, we know who God is, and then they murdered Jesus. 
who fulfilled all the things of the Old Testament that they said they believed. And now Jesus is sending 12 to represent the 12 tribes of Israel and to say, who is the true people of God? Only those who know and follow Jesus. These are the apostles. That's their message. And why does that matter to you and me today? The first thing is that their testimony is our stability. Their message is our foundation. Luke's gospel and Acts are written for those. He writes to a man named Theophilus, and he says, I have written and researched all these things about what has happened from the eyewitnesses and all throughout Jerusalem about Jesus so that you can have, this is Luke chapter 1, verse 4, certainty concerning the things that have been taught. Why is he writing, why does Luke write the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, which, by the way, are the, the most amount of words in the New Testament are written by Luke? Why is he um, vigorously researching all the things that had happened, collecting the eyewitness testimonies? Because he knows that most people, like you and I, don't get to meet an apostle in person. So instead, he's doing like what happens here at Purdue so often, intense research. And he goes and speaks and collects the data from all the actual eyewitnesses because this is the only reason you should, you should trust anything you've been taught that could be true about Christianity. And that's what he's saying. I want you to have certainty about the things you've been taught. Christianity isn't just doctrines that you take on and know in your mind. It is a historical reality rooted in people who saw something, witnessed to something, and fulfilled all the promises of the Old Testament. If that's not true, who cares about what you're taught to be? You're not being taught to simply be a good person, a nice Christian. That's not the message. The message isn't just to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and try a little harder, and that's what Jesus' love is like. Love him back. That's not the message. The first message is, you are part of a dark, deadly kingdom, and someone has come to change the entire fabric of the world. If that's not your stability, their testimony isn't your stability, then you will not really care or you won't really grow in the teachings of Christianity either. But in Ephesians 2, it says, Jesus Christ chose you who were far off and brought you near by his blood. For through him we all have been given access in one spirit to the Father, so that you are no longer strangers and aliens to God, but you are fellow citizens with all his saints and members of the household of God, which is the church, built on the foundation of the apostles, with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. If you are a Christian, then at some point, someone spoke the gospel message to you that God came to save humanity from our own corruptions, from living life according to our own name, to bring you into life into his name through the death of Jesus on the cross, through the powerful resurrection of Jesus from the grave, and the ascension of Jesus into a new kingdom with power and glory, a place where all the horrors of this world are no longer there. When you trusted this, you turned from all other messages as your guiding factor in life. The apostles are messengers chosen by Jesus 
to witness to his truth, which means that as a Christian, one of the most challenging things we have to do, but the most real thing we have to continually do is turn from all other truths that would claim to be our foundation. If that's not your truth, then you won't have stability. You and I are always being witnessed to about what is true. Ever since the Garden of Eden, the first false witness showed up. Satan came and said to Adam and Eve, that's not what God's really like. And what happened? They lost trust and stability in their lives and so became alienated from God. They stopped looking to their relationship with God and lost that relationship in a way. And the same has been true ever since. The question for us is, do you have this stability? Is there witness to what has happened in Christ your foundation? Because if it's not, it means you trust another truth. And my question to you is, okay. There are many things that are true in the world. But at the foundation, will that truth give you a hope and a security that your life can truly be fine ever, always, here, now, and in eternity? Will you go and look at the eyewitness accounts? Will you go read them more in depth in Scripture? And will you do the hard work of asking yourself, what is the source of my truth anyway? And if you don't think there is such a thing as truth, well, who can verify that for you? And how can you be certain? Because if you're certain there is no truth, then that is a truth that you've become certain of. How can you verify it? We depend on witnesses. Science, law, big bank transactions that you have to sign for, they're all rooted in witnesses, verification, confirmation. The Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are there to tell us this is the true story. This is the foundation of, of the church. Jesus is the cornerstone, the rock that built it. The apostles are the foundation built on the rock. This is our only stability. But secondly, we see their example. They are obedient. Here's the thing. Just before the apostles realize, uh, spend these 10 days praying and looking through the word, they realize, or they ask Jesus, will you restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus tells them, that's a really small vision, guys. I'm restoring you to the kingdom of God not the kingdom of one nation. And he says, go and wait for the promise I will send. So they go and wait. And in, in ancient Israel, the understanding of waiting didn't mean just twiddling their thumbs. It meant go pray and seek God through scripture. So that's what they're doing in the passage we read. But what that means is they actually trusted. They actually obeyed before they even understood of the whole implication of it. Isn't that really hard to do? <laughs> Sometimes you know something to do if you're a believer. You know some things you must do, but you don't really understand why, and you don't really want to, so you don't. But if you actually go obey, you might find out why. That's what happens to the apostles. They think, we want the kingdom of Israel restored. And what they're saying is, we have this really strong vision of what we hope our lives will become. Jesus, you're going to fix that now, right? And Jesus says, no. I'm going to fix things forever, not for one moment, for you. 
and praise God that he does that. Praise God that they obey. Because you and I, because they trusted and obeyed, they went and waited. God sent his spirit on them. He sends them out in his power to witness to the world that there really is another reality that stands behind this one. And our small vision, our small hopes of what life should be, get blown up in the witness of the apostles to realize that there is something way more grand for us. Is that your vision? Are you expectantly, obediently waiting for that? Are you praying for that? That even through you and me, small people on this big campus, we might actually be those who share this grander vision with our neighbors, give them the same kind of hope that Jesus died to bring us. We're not apostles, but we continue their witness. And this is the final thing. Their mission is our ministry. Because they had a lasting impact, we still keep going back to the Bible itself, which the New Testament is largely written either about their eyewitness accounts or by the eyewitnesses themselves. And we come back to that to know again and again, what are we here for? Why did Jesus die? How should we trust this thing that he gives us, this message? What Jesus began to do and teach, it says in the beginning of Acts, continues through the apostles, and now it continues through the church who are built on the foundation. Friends, this is our story. This is our daily life as the church. We are chosen by him, just like the apostles. They were, had a unique message and a unique time and a unique witness, but we simply get to continue to choose to walk with the one who chose us out of the world, but for the world, so that he could bring about the grand reality of his everlasting world where we are free from all the trials, struggles, pains, and difficulties of now. Let's pray. <coughs> Lord, we thank you for the apostles, the message you gave them, the witness that you called them into, and the way that they obeyed you in order to build the foundation of the church to proclaim again and again why your resurrection is the foundation of everything that might give us hope. Thank you for giving us lives that can be reversed from the things that we have hated, that we have struggled with, that we have sinned in, that we have longed to be different. We pray that we might see Christ as we read your word, just as the apostles did. That when we read the Old and New Testaments, we'd be reminded again you are the one who gave up your own life in order to reverse ours, to take us off the trajectory of death and bring us into the trajectory of a glorious life. Lord, we thank you and we love you and we pray this in your name.